Yes. Powers is a name. Dark Powers. And I am holding Lick Observatory hostage. <laughs> and soon, soon, it will be dead as I have it tied to the train tracks. Hold the on there, Dark Powers. Eric Brickmont, what are you doing here? I'm here to save this scientific institution, whether you like it or not. Well, you're too late, Mr. Brickmont. The train's coming right now. Oh no, it's coming! That's what you think. You see that herd over there? Yes? That ain't a herd. Those are friends of Lick Observatory and other supporters that have come to free this observatory. And they have big sticks. Yes, they do, and they're pointing right at you. And they speak softly, so softly. Get them, boys and girls. Ah, ah, ah. This is not the end, Mr. Brickmont. I will be back. Not anytime soon. Are you all right, Miss Lick? Oh, thank you so much, kind sir. Now get out there and do some science. I love doing science. Eric? Dude. <laughs> Eric. <coughs> Sorry. No, it's late. Sorry. I told oh. you not to have that sugar, dude. This is what you get when you have too much sugar. I know. I had a crazy stream. Yeah? You were in it, and you were in it, and I was in it. Wait, who was I? Ugh. <laughs> Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I'm still Brian Moriarty. And I'm still here. Yay! Yay! Michael's back! Welcome back, our friend and guest, Michael Kandrashoff, friend of Eric's, uh, astrophysicist, and friend of Lick Observatory. As well as Grandmaster Nerd, as we've established. Yes, yes, indeed. He speaks not just Star Trek. No, 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 no. He also speaks Star Wars and Firefly. Folks. And Farscape. And Farscape. And Farscape Folks, yes. if you like space in some way, he's got all of them. <laughs> to me, most eligible bachelor, I would think so, but actually he's taken, unfortunately. Sorry, folks. So, you know what? That uh, that starship has left Utopia Planitia Ooh. and headed into the stars. Yes. Nice. Oh, wow. You. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Can we be more nerdy? Yeah, we, we probably were last will. week, we, and we're yeah, going to be this week. I know we've got a whole yeah. other hour. I love it. Us. This is actually a two-parter. Well, the, our, our audience thinks this is a two-parter. This we actually are. It's the same night. We just paused and started doing an extra episode because when you get to this, Eric and I are going to be on vacation. Woohoo! Because it's my birthday, and uh, you you need a break. I need a break, and no, my dad wanted me to come out and be there in Colorado uh, for uh, for Father's Day. So you know, I'll be fishing actually, probably by the time this oh, episode that fun. is being broken. What's gonna be catching? Uh, trout, hopefully. Oh, nice. I, my dad's plan is to make some grilled fish tacos. Ooh, dude, that sounds awesome. Wait, Colorado fish tacos? Um, Colorado's actually got some amazing Mexican food. Number one, number two, <laughs> uh, where we're going, actually, Colorado's got some awesome trout fishing. Some of the best trout fishing in the country. So, uh, number three, shut your face. Mm. <laughs> Damn. And, and sorry, I'm not even the outdoorsy type, too. If you look at me, I do not read outdoors. No, 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 no. Not, not really. No, no. You read like phone booth in the middle of the city, and then flying through the sky. But that's mostly because you look like Clark, exactly. Clark Kent. Yeah. Holy exactly. crap! Like, doesn't he though? He does you, look you, you like Clark Kent. Kent. My dad, my dad, be like, "Hey, we're gonna go on a hike." I'd be like, uh, "Cool." So, can you wear chucks? Hiking? Is, is there Wi-Fi? 
Is there uh, Wi-Fi? Is there a Starbucks What's the, L- what's the LTE reception like? Because <laughs> I need to play my words with friends. Yeah. And Whereas I'm the exact opposite, and I'm only really happy if I've been sent out in the middle of nowhere where no one can get a hold of me. Which is what I try to do, actually, when I go volunteer at Lick. I go hiking before yes. that. Yes. Voluntary isolation, yes. as we've established, Eric likes that every now and then. Yes, we do. Um... And, of course, for Father's Day, I'll be celebrating with my newest addition, because this will be the first Father's Day where I will officially be the father of three, not just one, not just two, but three children. So I'm very excited to uh, have this Father's Day, which my birthday and Father's Day always align with one another, which is nice. So I, I get to have double the, uh, the, the party, and my father likes that because that means there's double the cake. Indeed. Well, what are your daughter's go-to Father's Day gifts for you? I mean, they're getting up there. They should be old enough to... I will find out this year. I think that the youngest will probably be either a dirty diaper or spit up. Okay, fair enough. Which or her present will be to do neither of the two. Uh, unlikely. Uh, <laughs> Both at the same time. There you go. That's happened before. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it's good times. Uh, I can, We could can do a whole episode on the history of baby poop. I'm, I'm very knowledgeable. Let's not. <laughs> Eric's 30th kids. birthday. <laughs> I love kids, but let's not. Um, but then, uh, Lucy and Sophie, they usually like draw me a picture or something like that. And honestly, that's, that's the stuff I like the most because when, when kids give adults to parents, you know, it's really just like my wife right? and saying, oh, it's from Lucy and Sophie and that's sweet and that's cute and they get to be a part of it. But I like it when they actually do something, you know, creative and they draw me a picture and make me a little book or something. Lucy made me a little book once. It was really cute. Can you hang it up at where you work? Uh... I could, I guess. I don't know where, and it'll probably get taken down. Probably in the break room would be okay, I think. The break room would be okay. Probably in the break room. Yeah, it'd be really cute. You know people would love it. Yes. Now, normally, uh, Brian or myself would make a very uh, witty segue into listener feedback, but we've decided this week we would try something a little different. We're actually going to do listener feedback at the end of the episode, and we'd like your feedback, (laughs) ironically, and let us know how you how did, how did you like it. Do you like it better at the end? Do you like it at the beginning? Um, do you want us to do it in the middle? Which I think would be weird, so don't suggest that. But uh, let us know what you think. Because we, we want to jump back into the topic, and we want to revisit where we left off last week with a little more information for you as well. Because uh, we, we mentioned Lick Observatory, very important place in the history of telescopes and their development and their creation and their... Uh, window into the universe that they've given us uh, and it is in at risk of being yeah, I mean, uh, defunded. It, yeah, I mean completely defunct close the doors, bar them which would be so very sad no. and if you want to action, if you want to help obviously we talked about uh, emailing the, the president of the uh, office of the president of the What's UC system. What's that address? I believe it is president at ucop.edu That's correct and there's lots of other ways that you can get involved in uh, saving Lick, and if you head to uclick.org slash save lick, there are several other resources that are available to you to uh, to get on that bandwagon if you if you're so inclined. And you know, Michael, you brought up a good point last time though. You know, why should people do it if they don't really know anything about it or they've never been to visit it? And I think in the history of telescopes, being that Lick is such an important part of that, let's talk a little bit about its history and lead us into modern telescopes and modern science and considering you know we have both of those things at lick observatory uh let's talk a little bit about its about its history too yeah sure so and how people can become a part of this history oh definitely um so lick observatory was the uh, as we said in in last week's episode the lick observatory is the first 
isolated mountaintop observatory. Uh, before observa you know, before they, they always had observatories, you know, at some rich person's mansion. If you go to Sedona, they actually still have telescopes up on top of like or giant, the, like three story, or in mansions. the middle of a city, yeah. or in the middle of a city. Yeah, at the university, because no one ever thought that light pollution was a thing. I don't know how, because it's pretty commonsensical, but... Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as bad, big of a deal, though, until the invention of the electric light. That's fair. Right? But, I so. mean, it was still... I mean, London in the 1800s, like... Yeah. I mean, it was still it was bad. I mean, there's smog. I sure. Mean, it, was, it was still pretty yeah. bad. Um, but, you know, James Lick funded the first um, mountaintop observatory, and that... Permanent, we should say. Permanent, yes. Pertinent, yeah. Because they, they, they would set up small little dinky telescopes for... Temporarily, yeah. yeah. for field trips or, or field studies or that sort of thing. Um, so it was the first permanent isolated mountaintop observatory. And because of that, you know, the fifth uh, moon of Jupiter was discovered there with the Great Lick Refractor. And also just pioneering astrophotography. You know, the the 36-inch had several very sensitive and, and be, you know, wonderful devices attached to it for photography uh, purposes. And uh, it was one of the, the first telescopes to really take full advantage of that. I mean, it was the first that could. I yeah. mean, think about it. It was the only one where you would have literally an unobstructed view of the sky for hours on end, which is what you needed to do true astrophotography. Hell, you still need that today to do yeah. true astrophotography. And if you head over to, uh, to UC Lick uclick.org you can also go to the archives section on that website and you can see uh, many of the instruments from that time uh, that have been preserved saved photographed information about them uh, and there are you know thousands upon thousands of glass plates uh, which are essentially negatives right that were being produced with these with these devices that are still in our archives today and i don't think we've actually mentioned it you can actually go up and look through the telescopes i don't think we've ever actually said that yet that's right because we have these amazing <laughs> public events that we do during the summer we have our summer visitors program in addition to our music of the spheres where you can come and listen to a concert and then on both of these nights uh, you get history and science lectures and you get to look through the 36-inch telescope. Yeah, and the 40. I mean, so you get you get two perspectives. You get the 36-inch, which is, you know, the, the largest telescope on Earth when it was constructed. It is the largest still functioning refracting telescope. That's right. We'll talk about one other one in a moment that uh, didn't fare so well. And, you know, you, you go, and it, they're literally on opposite sides of the observatory. You, you look through the 36, you step out, you go across, you go up the stairs, you look through the 40. And that's something that undergraduates like myself use today because they trust us not to break the darn thing. Um, and, and sometimes you guys are there yeah, in the exactly. control room giving uh, little mini lectures to people who are waiting for their turn to look through the telescope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think that my, my sultry voice sounds great on the internet radio, <laughs> see it with gesticulations. Yes, yeah, see this man in person. His hand movements are legendary. <laughs> it's, been a long, it's been a long time since we've heard the word gesticulate on our podcast. Um... But, you know, the 36 inches is so significant for so uh, so many reasons. And it, it put Mount Hamilton on the map, right? It brought science to the mountain. And uh, the, the feat of engineering it took to build it, and not just build it, but build it where it was, is incredible. Because think about it, folks. This is the 1880s, right? The project started in 1880. It wasn't completed until about eight years later. And they had to, for one, build Mount Hamilton Road, a single lane dirt highway to the top of Mount Hamilton. They had to blow off the very top of the mountain with dynamite just to level it out first to build anything on top of it. 
and then bring all the materials necessary for its construction plus erect this massive telescope, which is 14 tons in weight. It's 57 feet long, it's four feet in diameter, it's 14 tons, its counterweight is an equal 14 tons, just to make sure that you can move it as easily with just you know one finger, really. Uh, and then on top of all of that, you had to build the dome above it. And at this time, dome construction was all being done out of iron, and it was 99 tons worth of iron. Wow. Um, and on top of that, on top of what was there before even, you know, I mean, we have this massive floor, which is huge, and it's an elevator. It can move up and down to allow the telescope, as it kind of needs to pivot to look at objects on the horizon, a comfortable, you know, vantage point for the person who's looking through it. And, and just to look at that as a feat of engineering, I mean, that is the largest elevator um, before aircraft carriers. That's right. The largest elevator on Earth before aircraft carriers. Wow. Yeah, and it is unfortunately not working right now. Right now, but with your help. We could get it working again. Yes, it needs money. It needs money to have somebody come out and tell us how much money it really needs. Right. Um, so that's the first step. We need to actually, honestly, build a portal in time, build a, a better portal than the ones these guys have, to bring someone forward in time who could actually appraise the elevator because we're having trouble finding an engineer who can. So if any of you are antique elevator engineers out there... Yeah, let us know. <laughs> uh, we'll pass it on to the necessary people. Uh, but all of this speaks to how important this, this place really is and where telescopes would go after this as well. Because we've talked a lot about Lick. Let's talk a little bit about some other telescopes that are out there because, yes, it was the largest refracting telescope at its time, but unfortunately, just a few short years later, it would be beaten, and it'd be beaten by four inches. And that is, of course, the uh, great Yerkes refractor, uh, which is a 40-inch refractor, and a massive and impressive feat of engineering. It's a beautiful telescope. It's absolutely gorgeous. Why the hell they built it where they did, I don't know. Because Williams Bay, Wisconsin, is not the place you want to build a telescope. Why is that, Michael? Well, because you you have... And, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Wow. That's 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 his catchphrase. Yeah. You have to use a different one. That's No, that's fine. Take it. <laughs> use it. Enjoy it. Okay, thank you. Um, you essentially have almost a microclimate situation here. This thing is huge. Sure. And, you know, the, the climate in Wisconsin is very temperamental. And yeah, you end up setting... Which is way of saying it gets freaking cold there. It gets freaking cold and it gets freaking hot. Which can cause the components you call it, to contract and expand. Exactly. You, you have all of these very, very sensitive and very heavy and very large um, components working in tandem in order to make a telescope function and, and these components aren't you know the thermal plating on the space shuttle like these are iron and glass and 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 very basic stuff that's very temperate prone to warping and changing in, in very large temperature gradients yeah and for our folks who who live in wisconsin particularly southern wisconsin where this is located and again just north of uh chicago down in in uh, michigan uh, not michigan excuse me um illinois Illinois. Illinois, thank you. Uh, or a little further south in, in Illinois, uh, near Chicago, you know what your summers are like. They're hot and they're humid. You know what your winters are like. They're freaking cold and they've got tons of snow. 
even if we're not even just talking about thermodynamics for a minute, right, where we're talking about the stress that's being put on all of these instrumentation, and eventually one of the lenses would in fact crack uh, because of the stress and strain put on it over the years, we're talking about less than optimal viewing conditions. Mm -hmm. We're talking about unnecessary amounts of cloud cover. We're talking about extraordinarily high particle counts. We're talking about way too high of humidity to have that dome open. And even when it was in its prime, it still didn't get an opportunity to function like the way it should have been, like the way it was meant to be. And up at Lick, that telescope was functioning more nights uh, out of any year, with, and many times with crisper images than its, than its big brother. And it's such a shame because here we have telescopes, and here's the other thing we have that we've talked about a little bit, and that's politics, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about where does the money come? Who are the people who donate this money? And many times they're the ones who get to dictate where these things were being built. Oh, are you going to say the St. Helena story? Because I, I love, I hate the St. Helena story. Why don't you tell it? I oh. think you would tell it better. Okay. So this is near and dear to my heart because I grew up in Napa. But Lick was going to put um, the observatory in in Napa Valley in Northern California at, at, at the northern tip of wine country on a mountain called Mount St. Helena. And the story goes that he was very old, he was very infirmed, he had just had a stroke, he's basically bedridden. And they, they, they take his, his carriage up, and it's just like the ones you see, it's the litters you see in, uh, you read about in, in Song of Ice and Fire and see in Game of Thrones, you know, this luxurious carriage going up this mountain. And he hits a rock, and he flies out of the carriage, and he shakes his fist and says, Ah, oh, this mountain has scorned me, I'm not putting my observatory here. In addition, he couldn't see it from his house at this location. <laughs> Opinions differ on really why he didn't put his <laughs> observatory there. Um, so he ends up putting it on Mount Hamilton. Now, a big problem we face now at Lake Observatory is light pollution. Because San Jose and St. Helena, the town at the, bottom, at the bottoms of these mountains, both had a population of probably around a thousand or so when the observatory was constructed. But San Jose's got over a million now. Yeah, and St. Helena has right. about 8,000. Oh, right. <laughs> so if it had been on St. Helena, not only would young Michael have been able to visit it and would have known about it, um, but the seeing would be far more spectacular. Sure. Yeah, and you know, the, this is this is how telescopes were being built at that time. Mm -hmm. This is how the attitude towards telescopes was. They were ways of showing off, they were ways of making legacies, of leaving money, uh, and it wouldn't be until the in the next century, right? So uh, going into the, the 20th century, that we really would see observatories being built for the reason they were meant to be well, right. built, which and was I, science. And Lick started that by giving the observatory, by gifting it to, you know, the UC when he when he died. You know, by giving it to, by gifting it to UC, now UC Berkeley, but the UC system, really, um, he, you know, basically secured its future as a cutting-edge scientific institution. Um, Eric, why don't you tell me what its biggest contribution was, not to refracting telescopes, but to reflecting telescopes? Well, there was a, a fantastic telescope that was uh, that was constructed. It's the 36-inch Crosley Reflector. It received the Crosley Telescope from the UK, um, and they got they, it. Really proved, you know, now that it's now that it was in a mountaintop and isolated, relatively light pollutionless environment, they proved that reflecting telescopes were really the way um, to do astronomy scientifically. 
Right. Uh, you they could got create a larger surface that could be more easily uh, finished and maintained. Exactly, and with much less aberration. You know, this chromographic, chroma, chromographic, um, chromatic aberration was so, completely nullified. A lot of that blurriness goes away. Yeah. <laughs> he does know big words. So much, yeah. So much blurriness goes away. Yeah. When you use a reflecting telescope, and that was proven. Um, when we were looking for new ways to coat these larger and larger mirrors, um, you know, we, we uh, perfected aluminizing silver, coating like a glass or silver mirror with aluminum. That was perfected at Lick Observatory. And it's funny because it really is an amalgamation of the two different techniques yeah. and tactics, right? Because before it was glass exclusive and then they tried it for a while with just metal exclusive. Well, Newton started with metal. So it was like right. it, it, went, it was a sandwich. Did yeah. metal then glass, then, then metal again, and then it ended up being, you know, a combination of the two. And now we can do it in such a way that we can make these really lightweight glass, uh, f you know, uh, primary mm -hmm. mirrors, but then coat them in such a way that uh, it, it heralds back to earlier techniques, but right. with, with significantly less weight, and you can make them even larger now. Exactly. Larger and larger and larger is, is the theme of, 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 of telescope development. And larger and larger and, and larger, larger yet. <laughs> you know, my dad wants to build a telescope on the moon. Really? Has he ever told you this? No. So he can stare back at Earth? No. <laughs> no, Brian. <laughs> Other side of the moon. Other side of the moon. The dark yeah, that, that, that was the, the James Webb telescope, which ended up losing. Its well, I mean, I guess that's day. why I bring it up because <laughs> the moon, the moon does not rotate on an axis. It's, it's tightly locked. Yes. Yeah, well, so, it, it rotates on an axis, but it rotates with Earth. Yeah, that's what that's yes. what I meant to say. Yes. Yes. It's just it's its position it, does not. It's it's relative to the Earth does not change. Yeah. It's tidal locked, not unlike Venus. Yeah. Right. But my dad's idea was to build the biggest telescope ever made by taking uh, a liquid aluminum compound, but then spinning it hmm. and spinning it at such a great speed that it essentially smooths out. And his idea was to create, you know, at that point, you could technically create a reflective surface to just about any size you wanted. If yeah. you could somehow figure out how to get it perfectly smooth, then in one sixth Earth's gravity, you know, there's might be some way to do that. Well, I mean, they actually like so. This harkens back to um, different uh, lenses and different types of reflective telescopes. There, to make what's called a spherical mirror, you know, basically one that's just the surface of a sphere. You basically do it just by spinning it. Like they they have made lenses that way. So why not uh, why not do it with a large reflecting surface and you know just blow out a crater of the moon? We can do that. That's not that hard. Yeah, right? the Arecibo. Except for optical and on the moon. <laughs> Gentlemen, I'm shocked, but what about the Moonanites? The Moonanites? Never mind. Okay, Never I thought mind. we were going into another cold that went in the middle whoosh. of the... No, no. <laughs> okay, so, okay, this is, I'm totally dating myself, but uh, Adult Swim, the channel on Cartoon Network. Yes. After they have... Brian, we're all the same ages. Yes, you know? okay, the, the show Aquaman <clears throat> Hunger Force... Oh, okay. The Moonanites, the villains. Okay, yes. The, we are the Moonanites. All right, it took a moment. Thank Let's you. see what happens when you're cold as ice. And <laughs> I get the foreigner belt. <laughs> Thank you for that contribution, Brian. <laughs> it's all I have. <laughs> We're all crazy Moonanites. No. <laughs> Living in a uh, lunar paradise. No, astronomer's paradise. There we go. <laughs> So where were we? We were so we're back at Lick and we're illuminizing things. And we're making them shinier than ever. And again, yes, we pioneered that. But 
we're talking about also building bigger at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the uh, there are several telescopes that are within the UC system that are, are proof of that, and there are many that are outside of that too. And we talked about that 100-inch hooker uh, in the last episode. Uh, but let's to which I still say, wow. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, I mean, he self-plugged his own 100-inch hooker. <laughs> Sorry, I'm really proud of that joke. Anyway. Let's talk a little bit about that, because again, that's right at the turn of the next century. We're talking about a little bit past that, but, you know, 1920s, whatever, it's close enough. But we're talking about understanding the universe now with telescopes in a way that we didn't before. Because, yes, we could see different planetary bodies within our own system. Yes, we could see uh, what we, you know, what we now know as nebula and what we thought were nebula that are actually, in fact, galaxies. But now we see them in a detail never before seen. And we have an understanding of the way the universe works in a way that we never understood before. And explain a little bit about right. that. Well, I mean that that that's that's where Hubble comes in. You know, Hubble was able to to, to with with tele, with uh, instruments similar to the ones you find at Lick or found at Lick at that time. And this is Hubble the man, not Hubble the telescope. Right. Well, Hubble the telescope came after Hubble the man and was named after him. But just to clarify for our listeners, <laughs> but um, no Hubble. Uh, was able to, you know, look at these these things, these phenomena that they everyone thought were just gas clouds, and he was able to do something that had never been done before. He was actually able to take spectra of these objects, and that um, is the light of the objects. Exactly, and we're, we're, we're heralding down. back to, to to Newton here. He actually split the light up into its constituent components, and at this point, you know, molecular physics had gotten. We 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 kind of started to understand that you know gases. Um, emit light at different wavelengths. You know, when you electrolyze um, helium, or you elect, you can't electrolyze helium. Damn, when you electrolyze hydrogen, hydrogen <laughs> when you electrolyze, um, you know, carbon gas or methane or you know what have you, it um, glows a different color. And what Hubble was able to do is he took spectra of these objects and he realized that, you know, the ones that are closer to us you know, obviously had a very set spectrum, and he was actually able to determine what elements they were made out of. But other ones, ones that were smaller, dimmer, their colors were off. They were shifted. And this is the phenomenon we, we call redshift. It's the Doppler effect. Um, you know, the... As a train, you know, goes past you, it, it, it increases in pitch and then decreases. Well, the same thing happens with light. And Which means it goes from red to blue. In if you're talking about going across the or red to violet, if you're going across the spectrum, no. Yes, and so um, higher pitch is a higher frequency, and a higher frequency of light goes to blue. Right. But what he found was they were red. Right. So it was it was slowing the wavelength was slowing down. The wavelength was slowing down. Right. Which could only mean one thing. Right. That it's moving away from you. Exactly. And this this static universe that we lived in up to this point no longer exists. Right. And not and not only. Not only static, um, but he found structures that emitted light very similar to stars, starlight, that we thought were just clouds. And he postulated that they were groups of stars. And he further postulated, you know, as science goes, that what we see far away is what we have here. And he postulated, therefore, that we also live in a large amalgam of stars, and those, those are galaxies. So the first galaxies really understood at that point. And our universe exploded in size and complexity at that point. Exactly. You couldn't think about it in any other way. You had to acknowledge that, yes, once it was the Earth that was the center of the universe, then it became our solar system that was the center, then we became 
aware of our larger grouping of stars around us, but we were just one tiny insignificant speck even within our own galaxy in the context to the rest of the universe. And, I mean, talk about mind blown. blowing. I mean, Hubble must have just... Peace out, guys. I'm to take a coffee break. I gotta think this over for about five or six years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and thus, in doing so, kind of in a way proved that the Big Bang Theory was plausible. Well, because... the Big Bang Theory came later. Right. Yeah. That set the foundation for yeah, it. Yeah, he basically... So basically... Um, it's a good segue, because the Big Bang Theory came exactly from his um, observations. So essentially, think about this. You're looking... And everything around you is moving away from you. Not only that, but things that are apparently farther away are moving faster away from you. So you can imagine reversing time and having all these objects start coming together and coming at you. And that's where we get the Big Bang. Because the logical conclusion is everything condenses as you reel back time into a singularity, into a single point. So it had to have come from somewhere, and it had to have been released in such a violent and incredible explosion to continue to propel the universe away from itself yeah. after all of these years. And what that is, we, we still don't know. We speculate that it may have been a, a larger sun that was uh, about to supernova, basically. Is that what we're... Um, the, the, the Big Bang, like, there, there are many different... Like, the, the, the root, the, the kind of simplistic model is we just had a big, really tight ball of just pure energy that kind of expanded outward and then through a whole bunch of subatomic reactions that are far outside my education level and pay grade um started to become matter and you know started to form the building blocks of you know stuff the first elements like hydrogen which then eventually coalesced and created the very first stars and those coalesced and created the first galaxies and within this infant universe we see the formation of some of the things that we see recognizable around us today. Uh, And it's important to understand, folks, that once we put it into this kind of perspective at this time, we realize now that telescopes are the only true form of time travel Mm -hmm. that we really have available to us. They are time machines. They let us look into the universe of the past because light takes a certain amount of time to to move, right, Mm -hmm. to travel. And the light that leaves a star that is 50,000 light years away from us is that light that left 50,000 years ago. Well, so this is the one part I do know about astronomy. I can contribute something. I can contribute something. So the distance from the Earth to the Sun in astronomy is considered one astronomical unit. Yes. Correct? Correct. Correct. Yes. It takes light eight minutes to travel from Earth's Sun approximately to reach the planet Earth. Approximately eight. Yes. Yes. One astronomical unit. How many astronomical units, like, would it be that between us and say the the next, next star? The next star, yeah. Units. So, so here's 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 the math, and yeah. I'm not going to do the math, yeah. but I, but I can I can like anyone can validate can, the distance. Anyone can pull up Windows calculator and do yes. the math. Um, so it's eight light minutes per AU, right? Yeah. Um, the nearest star is four light years, so you take four years divided by eight minutes. So convert the years into minutes divided by eight, and that's how many AUs. Yes. It's a, a lot. lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a <laughs> lot. Yes. It is a metric crap ton of <laughs> AUs. <laughs> a metric crap ton. I am going to steal that and use that frequently. Uh, that's fantastic. But my, I think my point is that it 
it really showed the kind of universe that we live in now. It was that moment. It was a pivotal moment yes. in, the, in the history of astronomy and the history of mankind. And then it got turned on its head about 15 years ago. Right. And this, this, is, this is something I alluded to last week. It's the brilliant thing about astronomy. You know, because we are using time machines, we're using telescopes that are getting more grandiose and larger and, and, and filled with such cool little mechanisms. We're filling in the story backwards. Yeah, exactly. And not only backwards, but so far removed you can't replicate a star in a lab let alone replicate the big bang or the formation of the first galaxies and it's ironic because well i, I i'm probably using it in the wrong way because most people use the word ironic in the wrong way but uh the hubble space telescope would eventually take hubble's original theories and modify them slightly as well right because the observations that we made with that telescope were so precise now that we realized that the universe that we know as expanding wasn't uh doing so and slowing down which was the theory for a long time right they thought well okay there was that initial release of energy and everything's going out but now there's so much mass in the universe everything eventually has to come crashing right. in on itself and create what was called the big crunch right right well that, that, that was one model like there there were kind of there are several models about how the universe could go and it's just pure law it's just common sense you cover all your bases it either slows down it stays the same rate or it accelerates and only the fringiest of fringy scientists thought that it would accelerate and hubble the hubble space telescope mm. proved along with many other observations well, here's 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 the kicker lick telescopes i'll help discover actually most the bulk of the initial observations were done using the shane telescope oh wow i didn't know that actually mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's what saw... prompted them to use more powerful instruments to... And the Shane to Telescope confirm. is at Lick. Yes, sorry. Yes, yes. the Shane yes, is that. the four-meter telescope at Lick. Um, and Saul Perlmutter, one of the teams who discovered the, the accelerating universe, came out of UC Berkeley, came out of Lawrence Berkeley Labs, um, and used uh, the three-meter telescope at Lick Observatory um, and did his initial observations, which then would discover that uh, the universe is accelerating in its expansion. It's getting further and further and further away, and, and now the model has changed, and now the end of our universe, rather than being a crunch, is going to be a bit of a freeze. So you keep saying the distance is getting larger and larger and larger, and larger yet. Yes. Are we going to do this all episode? Because I kind of like this. <laughs> we got to do at least three. It. We have to do hat trick. It's okay, true. we'll fi yeah. we'll f figure it in yeah. for the end there. Yeah. So, so again, the the hundred inch Hooker telescope was an amazing instrument for Hubble, and it again proved that we just needed to keep building bigger in order for us to understand more. Because mm -hmm. only bigger telescopes can collect more light. Mm -hmm. The more light you have collected, the further back into the mm -hmm. universe that you can see, and understanding more about the origin of the universe helps us understand what we're seeing in the current right now right and that and that that was always sort of the end game was a better resolution but you're right like we realized how important it was because we had always thought that we had seen the boundaries um you know at our galaxy and we realized that there's so much more to be seen and more to do that could ever be done um but really that's where we run into the biggest limitation with optical telescopes right is making a reflective surface that is large enough yes we had the hell of a time doing it with the twin eight meters up at, at the uh, mauna kea at mm -hmm. the keck observatory um, we actually proved that at lick as well so we built the first so if, if if you guys if you guys have ever seen the the mirrors and i hope you you google either pictures or diagrams of them they're basically like compound eyes they're a bunch of little 
hexagonal is that, are the eight meters those or are they a single mirror no no they no, are they, they are hex- they are those hexagonal are, segments yeah they're those it's a compound mirror it's a bunch of hexagonal segments and we built the first one at lick the first segment is there, and you could actually find it in the basement under the the three meter telescope. Just to prove that it would work. Just to prove that it would work. And when they realized they could build one, they're like, "Oh, sweet, let's put them all together." Yeah. And not only that, let's put motors under them. So this 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 heralds back to something else that like pioneered, which is adaptive optics. Actually, somehow changing the way you gather or process images to remove um, obstacles that you've always faced when having a ground based telescope, and that's the atmosphere, the mm. twinkling of stars horrible for taking observations of anything far away and lick the solution at lick was to use a laser because all good solutions involve a laser oh yeah they do. so essentially what they would do is this is brilliant and and very devious it's very star wars <laughs> they uh fired when ready fired a laser up into the atmosphere and destroyed alderaan Yes, and destroyed Alderaan. And in the process, polarized some sodium atoms. Yeah, they they ionized. Or ionized. Ionized um, a part of the sodium layer of the atmosphere. Oh, really? And caused it to glow. And they would ionize a part of the atmosphere right next to the star there, or the object they were looking at. And they target that that new star first and figure out how it twinkled, how it twinkled, and then would go to the object and subtract out the twinkle. That's right. That's wow. adaptive optics. And we realized once we already, once, you know, the limitation of glass kept us from building eight, 10 meter um, mirrors and we had to segment them anyway, we realized that we can actually adapt the optics um, before we get, or while we're gathering the light. So we use the same laser, we use the same laser technology at, at, Ke- at Keck, but what we do is we actually change the shape of the mirror to compensate. Wow. So there are little motors under little each pistons. section. Yeah, they yeah. all kind of fire off. And, and so if you it. if you look at the mirror from far away, it looks like a liquid that's undulating. It's so freaking cool. Wow. Yeah. Pretty cool. And what this means is now we can build larger and larger telescopes, and that's the plan, right? Oh yeah, we have the. So this is this is something that the that the UC is you know putting a bunch of money into. I think we are still the the biggest contributor, the contributor to this yes. to this project. Um, and actually, Alex and Jeff were both on like the council, and they you know all of our research meetings were oh what's going to happen with this telescope? Um, but we're building a thirty meter. So three times the diameter, so nine times the area of the largest telescope today. And we're building this also on top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Wow. And, and this is this yeah. is going to be just freaking gigantic. When it's completed, we'll be able to see within just a couple hundred thousand years after the first seconds of the Big Bang. We'll be able to peer back to the baby pictures, to like the three-month-old pictures mm-hmm. of our universe. And with it will come an understanding unprecedented in human history. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Now, we already kind of do that now, but in a different wavelength. That's right. I think, ooh, well done. Good time to transition because we talked a ton, a whole episode and a half about optical telescopes. But an optical telescope does a telescope not make, right? I mean, it is... There are many other types that are out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, so... You know, so, so so just to refresh probably most people, and this may be new information to some, light as we see it is only a very small section of all light in the universe. Most, right. most light we cannot see, and light comes in many different wavelengths. It's to the point where we now call it the electromagnetic spectrum as opposed to just the light spectrum. Exactly. And, you know, one of those 
sets of wavelengths are radio waves. The same stuff you use to broadcast music and, and yes, whatnot. Which we discovered we were being bombarded with uh, back in the late 19th century. Exactly. And by um, uh, entrepreneuring electrical engineer, I believe, by the name of uh, Jansky. I don't know his first name. Um, but I remember the name Jansky because it ends up becoming like a unit of flux in radio astronomy. And it's like <laughs> the most obtuse unit. It's like joules per meter squared over wa- uh, hertz. Wow. Sure. Yeah, I know, right? As you what, do. What are we going to call it? Call it a Yansky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> most obtuse name for the most obtuse unit possible. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, built the first radio telescope. And it was just like a bunch of, of metal kind of in a trellis sort of shape. Um, and that's the thing. A telescope, you know, once you broaden yourself away from optical, a telescope can be anything. Um you know, to my point, we, we probe the earliest universe now in radio waves using telescopes that are just a bunch of PVC pipe and metal. They cost nothing, you know, compared to, you know, the science, NASA's science budget, um, you know, per unit. And we can build hundreds of them in a single array. And all the money's then in, you know, powerful computers to process all the signal. But a telescope can be just an antenna, be just a wire. Well, and remember that the universe is full of gas. It's all over the place. Galaxies are chucked full of them, and it's choking. It's difficult to get actual visible light to, to see through those, and doesn't matter how big a telescope you have, you can't cut through the gas. Mm-hmm. Telescopes like the Chandra X-ray Observatory, mm-hmm. however, can, and they can look through and discover things that we, we didn't even think were possible, like black holes at the center of our own galaxy. How crazy is that? Super massive black holes that run the engine of our galaxy if you will mm-hmm. uh all because we we cut out the visual and went a different wavelength mm-hmm. so cool so very cool i mean astronomy really teaches you that the that the human perspective actually really all of all of physics and, and astronomy teaches you that the human perspective is the most limited you know newtonian mechanics were uh, an approximation and a wrong one at that it was really relativistic laws and quantum mechanics and um, light as we see it is a very small part of the picture and a very limited part of the picture at that. So folks, uh, you know, at this point I want to make an appeal to you and I want you to go and find any way you can to look through a telescope. If you've never done it before, now is the time to do it. Because now that we've given you not just one, but two episodes of context as to why you should... It really is a really grounding, ironically, experience, right? It is something that I think uh, will enlighten you and 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 bring a whole new, uh, whole new way of looking at uh, at your own individual contribution to the world. Absolutely, and to add on to that, seeing it like that, seeing the world like that, makes it doesn't. Yes, it is very grounding, but I'll, I'll put another spin on it. It makes you feel like you're a part of something much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Which to me is an incredibly spiritual experience. No, I mean, totally. I mean, yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, there's there's a concept in kind of the more pedestrian um, mindsets of anthropology that there are kind of three phases of intellectual elite. There's your mysticism, your pagan you know, religions, nature-based religions, then you have your organized religion, then you have your, your reason, your secular um, and, you know, the intellectual elite kind of passes through those three stages. Um, astronomy has been part of all three of them. And now, you know, the Catholic Church recognizes the Big Bang Theory as a creation event. 
Um, everyone's looking towards the skies and using it as part of sermons, as part of lectures, as part of, you know, uh, tracking your fate, you know, your astrological sign and, and, and you know, deriving your fate. Um, so it's an amazing, amazing science, and it's an amazing thing to be a part of. Here, here. Well be a part said. of it, folks. Yeah, go out there and be a part of it. Uh, if you want, there are many local astronomical societies that exist in pretty much just about everywhere you go. If you search your city and amateur astronomical after it, you're probably going to find mm -hmm. something. If you live here in the Bay Area, again, the, the Hulls Valley Astronomical Group is the one that I'm a member of, but there's many others that are out there. If they're closer to you in that part of the Bay Area or world, Go join it. And no matter where you are in the world, if you want to become part of Lick's Astronomical Society, um, we invite you to join Friends of Lick Observatory. And their URL is uh, uco.lick.org slash public slash friends. And for a small, don a small regular donation, um, you'll get a personal letter from some of our chief scientists like Alex Filipenko. Um, you'll get, you know invites to special events you'll get discounts to special events and i believe there are a whole bunch of other perks you know like in the gift shop and you get special dispatches and you know at the end of the day you're really supporting a, a chief um scientific and um, just astronomical institution yeah be a part of, of its continued history save yeah. it be you only live once so become a friend of lick observatory yolo folo <laughs> there you go it's got to be the new slogan um, thank you again, Michael. I have to say, though, before anything else, your contribution to these episodes has been uh, vital. Uh, and, and what an enriching experience for our listeners as well. So I'd like to invite you to come back again and join us here in the Nerd Cave for recording in the future. You know, maybe not just on astronomy. If you have other interests in, in history and what have you, you want to talk about them, uh, by all means, please come back. But uh, again, thank you so much for your contribution today. Oh, of course. Uh, you'll stick around for some listener feedback? Of course I will. All right, awesome. So, folks, uh, again, we're doing a little different this time. But, uh, oh, 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 I think I hear it. Here, here it comes. Here it comes. This week in listener feedback. We've got to it. All right. Well, so I'll share a couple quick ones. Uh, one, we got a response from Mooncat, also giving us some positive feedback about our the anti-W, uh, the uh, TR episode which is the overall theme to be totally honest yeah uh it says hello fellow nerds mooncat here again really enjoyed your teddy roosevelt episode it reminded me of the angry history podcast episode earliest presidential voices which features the man himself the voice doesn't fit the image no it uh, doesn't <laughs> no uh, thought you would find it interesting keep up the good work oh by the way he also mentioned that too that dino mentioned that he was kind of uh, surprised that our voice acting choice for Theodore Roosevelt because for as big of a man he was he had a higher pitched voice and well Eric tried to capture that and I, I tried thought did, I thought you did a good job but I guess it didn't read on the over the mic well I mean so wait can can I can I cut in for a second yeah um like you you hear these 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 fake old-timey voices and they all sound very similar to, to TR so is it did they base it on his recordings or is it just like a, a an artifact from recording that way that that adds you know as far as half we a register tell, to your heard, voice as far as we we could tell we listened to a recording of his voice yeah and it was just higher pitched so it, it it's because i'm not an trained actor i am an amateur no 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 i couldn't get a shame that i feel every night or I should say second since that was actually right because I didn't feel any shame before Eric. that but yeah calm down you did right. great you did great I know someone's disagreeing I with know. one of your choices I know it's just hard for me to accept 
it's called dramatic license. And it was it was really more out of ignorance. They yeah. probably hadn't heard his voice yeah. before. And Dino, uh, we always thank you for your feedback. I can't read everything that you wrote, but he did want to share some fun facts. Like up until uh, including the failed Reagan assassination, all the presidents who've died in office have been elected on a zero year. Oh. Interesting fact. And that's including starting with William Harrison. It's a conspiracy. Yeah. We're going to need to have another conspiracy episode. Yeah. Well, then, to be... F- yeah, and then Reagan's, of course, broke up. Well, Reagan was the only president who had a failed assassination attempt. I don't think all the other ones, who I think, were successful, as far as I know. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but... Um, well, Reagan... That was a failed one. That's what I'm saying. He was the only one that, I think, had a failed attempt. I think every oh, other sorry. attempt to kill the president has succeeded. Well, well and except, except for Teddy TR. Roosevelt. Yeah, TR and, and Reagan. But he was not president at that point. He was re he was recampaigning uh, for. He was a former oh, president. Oh, Mr. Point. Technicalities over yes. here. I mean, that's all history is, right? Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> um, also, he gave some f- fun facts about Robert Todd Lincoln. He was a uh, a. Uh, an advisor to James A. Garfield, another president who got assassinated, and he was also an advisor to McKinley, who also got assassinated. So RTL just had bad luck all around him, huh? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. They should have kept him away with a yeah. very, very, very long time. And if I didn't say, Ray, RTL was Robert Todd Lincoln. That was uh, that was Abraham Lincoln's eldest son. So uh, I think we gathered. Yeah, but just to make sure it was, it was clear. What do you have, sir? Uh, this one comes from uh, Mary, Virginia. And that's not her last name. That's a middle name. We never say last names, but just so people know. Uh, so I just discovered your podcast, and I love it. I keep wanting to talk back to my uh, phone because I want to add something to the discussion. I particularly like how you don't sound like you're reading a script, but rather are following an outline and just chatting away. So cool. Thank you. Yeah, I know. Thank you. I just finished listening to Indy's Not a Superhero, uh, from the September 17th, 2012 episode, that's exactly when it was. What is your take on the Lone Ranger? Is he more like Indiana Jones because he doesn't have superpowers? So I think we defined that the, what makes a superhero a superhero. Um, there are early attempts at pulp heroes. I'm going to dive into my comic book knowledge here for a second. Um, that also don't quite miss the mark. I think Indiana Jones is online with like a Doc Savage or an Alan Quartermain. Right. Where they are definitely action heroes who do definitely use luck as their means of getting out of sticky situations, right? A superhero is somebody who I feel, yes, they could have superpowers, but Batman's also a superhero and he has no superpowers. What makes him super? Uh, he has uh, an intellect that is far beyond those of normal people, right? A willpower that will not be diminished. And he's devoted himself to all of these capabilities that he's been able to develop, right? Lone Ranger has a, an impassioned intention. He, his family, or he was, uh, he was uh, wrongfully uh, attempted to be killed. So everyone, he th- everyone thinks he's dead. So he has to wear the mask so no one can find out it's really him. To so the rest of the world, John Reed is dead. And I think his uh, unwavering. Uh, attempt to seek justice that is what makes him a superhero is that he follows uh, an ideal that puts him above uh, his adversaries and uh, he has to become to quote Batman Begins he has to become a symbol to do that and he becomes he adopts the name the Lone Ranger so when it, when you have a hero who becomes a symbolic persona with an unwavering ideal that it uses 
to accomplish their mission, that's when you have a superhero. I agree. And I think that it even kind of blends in with like Green Lantern, for example, because he's not, he doesn't possess actual superpowers himself. He has a, a ring, a device that allows him to tap into his imagination. And through his imagination and through his willpower, he's able to manifest yes. and create all these amazing things and do these amazing things. The Lone Ranger and Indiana Jones, they're kind of doing the same thing, but without, you know, a ring. Yeah. But I'm not, also, I'm not qualifying Indiana Jones as a superhero, though. As we talked about, and we had the same discussion like two years ago too. But well, because uh, Indiana Jones is his is his person. He's in. He's in. Yeah, he's in he's, it for, it's not a symbolic. Exactly. Thing. Yeah. And he's in it for the treasure. He's yeah. in it for the discovery. I mean, aspect. I would almost say it's exceptionalism by design makes a superhero. Exceptionalism by circumstance. Yes. Makes your your stand your action. And what I find is when you have the unwavering devotion to an ideal, it's all the more interesting when when you think it's unwavering and that is called into doubt. Right? Okay. Okay. But I have to say, Temple of Doom, he wasn't doing it just for the glory. If he was doing it just for the glory, he would have taken the stones and gotten the hell out of Dodge. Instead, he frees an entire slave population, and he brings them all back to the village. But you're still forgetting the most important piece of this formula. He does not adopt another persona to do so. And that, I think, is another... That is a key attribute of But isn't he, though? Because even though he is... Professor Jones. He is Professor Jones in, in one sense, right? To his students, he is very studious. He's very quiet in a sense. He's very reserved. He locks himself in his office. He goes out the window instead of dealing with all of his, his students. But when he's in the field, he's a whole different Dr. Jones. He's He is indie at that point. So even though he is not it's a thin willingly... Argument, sir. Well, I don't think well, it is. thought to ponder, is James Bond a superhero? And I think we'll leave that for another episode. Mm. I'm just saying, by your definition, Indy, because he he has assumed essentially a another persona in himself when he's out in the field, he's a different Indiana he's a different, Jones. I don't think he's a different Indiana Jones. I think he's still Indiana Jones. He's not assuming another personality. But he's Indy. He's not Professor Jones. Professor Jones is back at the university. Indy is who's out in the field. Okay, so... My nickname when I was a kid is Bry Fry. Am I a different person because I go by Bry Fry sometimes and I go by Brian otherwise? No, because you as Bry Fry doesn't define what you do as Bry Fry. If you went out there... It's indie. Indie's just a nickname. No, no, no. It's not just a nickname. It, it's more casual. Do you casual. think he's professory when he's professoring? He does not seem... Profe- he doesn't seem like a different... I beg to differ. I have seen Raiders of the Eric Lost Ark. Eric really, really wants Indy to be a superhero, and that's all that there is to Even it. Even though I actually kind of think the character's a jackass, but <laughs> I'm still defending him as much as possible. Um, if he had become... An, if he had a costume that he would put on... He th- does! Yeah, that's... He does. He wears the same freaking thing everywhere he goes he in the field. field clothing. I've never worn field clothing like that. Most, most of my field clothing has been shorts, a cotton t-shirt, uh, a straw hat, and very, very large boots. There is one other key factor here. He has to conceal his identity in some way. And that's part of the persona aspect of it. He does not conceal his identity at all. Everyone can look at him and say, well, that's Indiana Jones, that's Dr. Jones. He does not have that. Therefore, he is not a superhero. So what we're doing to Indy is what we did to Pluto. <laughs> oh, please. I don't think. Yeah, but, exactly but no, because Indy here, wasn't folks. wasn't presented as a superhero. 
Uh, I don't think the question ever came up. Oh, dude, do you, do you hear what he's doing? Right <laughs> yeah, now? I see what he's, he's doing. doing right you now. guys just Neil deGrasse Tysoned Indy. Oh, I love there. that Neil deGrasse Tyson is a verb now. <laughs> yes. It's the longest verb in the English language. All right, folks. No, and Tyson. On, and, and on that note, um, thank you very much for listening. Of course, as we, we didn't even say in our last episode, we left it on such a cliffhanger. If you want to connect with us here at Nerdotomy, please do so. Go to our website, nerdotomy.com. Click on listener feedback. Give us some feedback. Head over to all of our awesome social media sites like our Facebook page or Twitter where you can contact me directly at the Brickmont. And I'm at Brian Moriarty. And, and I don't have a Twitter. All right. But you know what you can do also when you're at Deuteronomy.com and you're giving us some feedback? You can also click on that donate button. Oh, yeah, you can. Yes, you know, Lick needs support too, but so do we. And if you can, if you do have it in your heart and your wallet, by all means, throw us a couple bucks. We can take anything above a dollar through our PayPal account. And speaking of our website, can we put the Lick, all that Lick links? We will post it to our social media. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can we just, like, no, put it, like, right under the uh, little podcast play button? Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link in the post, and we'll put yeah. a link on the social yeah, media we're, as we're well. We're going to make that happen. Absolutely. Well, friends, it's that time. Until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune in to us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. Adios. So did I have, like, a mustache in your dream? Yeah, actually. Okay, I had a feeling I did. Yeah. I don't know why. Can I not have a dress in your dream? Yeah, that needs to happen. I'm going to go talk to my therapist now. Goodbye.